Thank you, Peter. I hope you could connect the dots there. Oh, how he loves you and me. He sent his son. Silent night. Amen. Thank you. We're looking at Ephesians uh, chapter 1. Um, I can remember being in South Africa and the first time I ever heard a church do a greeting as part of God's word every Sunday. Just like we do it, we end our service with a benediction. And to hear grace to you and peace from God the Father, it was like God had spoken directly to me. This word is living and active that we're looking at. This isn't like any other book you'll ever pick up and read. This book promises to judge the thoughts and attitudes of your heart this morning. It's not gonna return void. It's God's word. He still speaks and he's speaking right now to his people. And he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for our spiritual antenna, our ability to receive this word, this implanted word that would save our souls. Of your own will, you give us birth. And we ask that, Lord, you would work in us what we cannot do for ourselves and accomplish your good purposes, that this word would bear fruit in our hearts and that we with good and noble hearts would bear fruit with patience. We ask that you would open up our hearts to see your love, your grace, your goodness, that we would not doubt, that we would trust you and believe. We ask that, Lord, you would speak now, for we're listening. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're talking about the doctrine of election and God's sovereignty, and I can remember when I was... I had grown up in a church that would never talk about any of these kinds of truths, and I can remember first being exposed to what's called the doctrines of grace, and for a time, I was quite depressed when I heard these things because I really thought that there was something that I did to contribute to my salvation, and when I really found out that the only thing I contributed to my salvation was my sin, it was a little bit of a downer, I have to tell you, for a little while. I used to almost find kind of a joy in my testimony to talk about what I had done, how I had given my life, and I had come to this truth, and I had come to this realization, when in reality, that was true but God was the one who worked in me to cause all those things to happen. But when I did come to embrace these truths, my life really began to change to the glory of God. And I can say that I actually, life started to make sense. And what I mean by that, as I've shared my testimonies, I've told people that it was like opening up my, the, 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 the closet in my, in, and, and every time I would receive a piece of information, I didn't really know what to do with it. So I would just throw it into the closet. You know, I'd hear something about, you know, in the news, or I'd hear something in, in the Bible, and I would just throw everything into the closet. 
But once I understood that God is completely sovereign, it was like somebody had given me a nice railing that I could hang every piece of information that I was getting. Here's something bad that's happened. God is sovereign. My computer crashed this morning. God is sovereign. He's good in that. I have to accept it. I was having a hard time with that this morning, saying, Lord, please don't let that be the case. But everything that, every news that comes and every you interpret life, you can begin to hang everything on the bar that does not break, it's God's sovereignty. And life starts to make sense and you can see that everything, he, it's all his world and it all is under his lordship. Well then life begins to make sense and the closet starts to clean up quite a bit and you can start to hang the information. Well I hope you're able to do that by the grace of God. Last week I just, we expounded the text of Ephesians 1. Last week was more adoration, this week's more explanation. So last week we talked briefly about what God did, how he did it, when he did it, and why he did it. So let's just briefly review what God did. In Ephesians 1, we're told in verse 3, what God did is he blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That's not every financial blessing. That's not every temporal blessing. That is every spiritual blessing. Well, what were, specifically are those blessings? Verse 4, he chose us. And in verse 5, he predestined us for adoption in love. So that's what God did. Well, how did he do it? Well, we're told how he did it. We are told that he did it in love. He predestined us. It doesn't say in wrath or in, in forbearance or in frustration or begrudgingly. It says in love, according to the purpose of his will, not our will. And so what we have is a wonderful combination of power and pity, sovereignty, saving strength, his might and his mercy coming together in sovereign grace to save a wretch like me. That's, what, that's how he did it. When did he do this? Well, we're told in verse four that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Not when I became a Christian, not when Jesus died, not when Adam fell into sin, not when he created Adam, no. Before the foundation of the world. And why did he do it? Why would God predetermine and choose a people for himself, for his glory, to the praise of his glory and for our good that we would be holy and blameless before him? Now, I can't share all the objections that are raised against this doctrine. I can try and share a few, and I can kind of rehearse kind of some of my own thinking. You know, as these doctrines started to be presented to me, my, my first thought about the truths of predestination and election was, okay, I get it, that's good. God saw I was gonna choose him, so he looked down through the tunnel of time, and he chose me because I'm so special. And the problem with that is that if, if, if that was really true, then God is bound by my sovereign free will, and God has no free will at all. The question really is here, who has free will, God or you? And God makes it clear in scripture that it says in 2 Timothy 2.19, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, we've heard that a bunch this morning, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the world began. So he called us not according to our works, not according to our goodness, he saved us. And it says in Romans 9, in, in talking about Jacob and Esau, 
It says, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Somebody once came to Spurgeon and said, I have a real problem with this passage. And Spurgeon said, me too. And the lady said, I just can't believe that the Bible says Esau I hated. And Jacob said, that's not my, or Spurgeon said, that's not my problem at all. My problem is how the Bible can say Jacob I loved. Because Jacob was a worm. But God loved him. And so God was gracious uh, to him. Nobody gets injustice. We'll kind of get to that in a minute. But God is free to save whom he wants to save. And so some people think of predestination more of like the Amtrak train. The Amtrak train today, for example, left at 9 a.m. from uh, Union Station, and it's going to Grand Central Station. It will arrive at 11.53 a.m. this morning. The train is predestined to arrive there at Grand Central Station at 11.53. And so some people think of a, a predestination in that way. It's predestined that there's, there's going to be a Amtrak train, but I have to buy the ticket and I have to get on the train. And so it's God sent his son for the redemption of sinners in general. That's what he predestined. He made a way to make you savable, but it's up to you now to choose or refuse salvation. Now, what's the problem with that view of predestination? Well, one, it's not biblical. But number two, nobody would ever buy a ticket and nobody would ever get on the train. And what I mean by that is that the, the people have a problem with election is that we really don't understand the depths of our depravity. And so the Bible says some pretty harsh realities about our abilities to respond to him. So let's just remind ourselves of what the scripture does say in the plight of where we're at. So in Genesis 6, 5, the beginning, this is before the flood ever happened, we are told that the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Ouch. After the fall, Genesis 8, 21, it doesn't get any better. We're told the same thing, uh, except it says from his youth. In Jeremiah 13, 23, we are told, can the Ethian change his skin or the leopard his spots? That's a rhetorical question. Neither can you, can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Meaning you can't change your disposition. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 11, I remember one time we were going on a short-term mission trip and we were picking out our favorite verse that was kind of going to be the theme verse of our mission trip. And, and the girl... Uh, we picked the verse, Matthew 7, 11. It says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? And one of the girls on the trip just said, I don't like that verse. Because Jesus wasn't into self-esteem. I mean, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts? And she just blurted out the truth of what she really was feeling in her heart. She said, I don't like that verse. And I was like, well, the, you know, if there's something in, your, in the Bible you don't like, what's the first quote in the meditation this morning? Is the problem you are the Bible. The problem is always us. And so some of these things are very hard to accept. I told you when I first heard these truths, I was depressed until God wonderfully lifted my spirit. 
and showed me that it was all him. And what really changed me was we had, I had a systematics class in college and we had to go through and look up every time the Bible uses the word call. And we had to put next to that word call, inward or outward, efficacious or not. And went through the whole New Testament, actually Old Testament as well. Every time the word calling is used and write down inward, outward, efficacious or not. And there are very few references to the outward call. Many are called, few are chosen, that will be the outward call. But the inward call is the efficacious call of God that what he, who he calls, he justifies, and who he justified, he also glorified. Past tense, done deal, golden chain, can't be broken, no fumbles, no drop computers, no drop souls. Well, who he calls, he's gonna glorify. And, and I just said, okay, God, <laughs> you're God and I'm not. And so we're reminded here that our sinfulness is we're not able to do this ourselves. The Bible says things like the call to worship this morning. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. Just count the no's in this verse. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. How many times does God have to tell? We have to be told a lot, okay, that no, it's not you. You don't even seek him. There's no one righteous, no one does good, not even one. Matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, our spiritual antenna is broken. The natural man does not receive or accept the things of the spirit of God for their folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And then Romans 8.7 says that the mind that is set on the flesh, that's the natural heart, is hostile to God, meaning hates God. He doesn't submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. That's why Jesus could say in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Not may come to me, may refers to permission, can refers to ability. No one can come to me. So predestination is not a general idea to make sinners savable, it's a specific plan to save sinners. It's personal. Paul says in his own testimony that he persecuted the church of God in Galatians violently, tried to destroy it. He was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely jealous was I for the tradition of my father as he was persecuting the church. But when he who had set, but he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Can you see how this is very personal? This is not some general plan of Amtrak. This is a specific, no, I'm picking you up and putting you on the train, okay? And so the natural thinking behind that at, at first blush is this doesn't seem fair. I can remember raising that objection in, in class. I remember telling my professor, you know, this isn't fair. Are you telling me that some people don't have a chance? What about people who want to come to Jesus? What about people who want to come to Christ? And I think you might have, can kind of conjure up this image that, that you know, there's these people that are, that are in hell and, and, and they're just banging on the door. You know, Lord, let me out, let me out. Save me, save me. But no, God's being such a hard God, he's shut the lid and he's bolted it and locked it and they can't come. Is that the picture of scripture? No, this picture of scripture is actually just the opposite, is that the people in hell have shut the door, bolted it shut, and are screaming, I hate you, I hate you. 
and I don't want anything to do with you, and I will not have you reign over me, and I do not love your Christ, and I will stay here. That's the, the picture of the Bible, is that our flesh hates God. It's a scary thing. And so it might, you might think, well, God, you've made me like this. I had a lady once in Sunday school raise her hand and she just said basically, and it's kind of a crass illustration, but this is how she told it to me. She said, we're being punished for something we didn't do. That if Adam, you know, he sinned and, and, and because of that we've all fallen, it's like you've, you've gone away for the day, you've left the dog in the house, the dog pooped in the house and you've come home and now you scold the dog and punish the dog when you never took the dog out. And she wanted to know, how do you respond to that? Good question. And my response to her was the door was open in Adam. And the dog had plenty of ability to go out and go potty. And the dog chose not to go potty, but to, you know, do its thing. And the, and, and the idea is that we all sinned in Adam. We were represented fairly. And if we were there, we would have chosen the fruit as well. And so God has to save his people. We can't do it. If we could do it, then it would be all about us and we'd be getting to heaven. We would tell God to move over. This is my throne now. Look what I did. Aren't I special? But the reality, it's all of him, all of his grace. Check out the difference between the Living Bible and the ESV on Acts 13.48. I had never seen this before. Acts 13.48 says... Uh, the ESV I'll read first, which is the bottom of the quote here. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. How come they believed? Because they were appointed. Who, who appointed them? God. Well, the Living Bible translate this is a paraphrase. This guy was writing this on the train for his children, and it became the Living Bible. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and rejoiced in Paul's message, and as many as wanted eternal life believed. There lies the difference between the East and the West, okay? <laughs> Nobody wants him. Nobody seeks him. God has to not only woo us, but he has to regenerate our hearts, change our hearts from the inside out, take out a heart of stone, give us a heart of flesh so that we would want to come. The Bible says, Jesus said, all the ones the Father has given me shall come to me. How come they come? Because he, he changes their heart and their ability so that they want to come to him. Spurgeon put it like this in his autobiography. He was a great preacher back in the 1800s. He said this, one, one weeknight when I was sitting in the house of God, I wasn't thinking much about the preacher's sermon for I didn't believe it. There's an honest statement. I hope that's not you this morning, but the thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord, but how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I shouldn't have sought him unless there was some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, well, how come I came to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. Well, how come I came to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. That's the Bible. Hebrews 11, and so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me, and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day, and I desire to make my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. That's Spurgeon's autobiography. And so uh, the, as we 
realize this and re- wait a minute, this is all God's doing. Well, then the, the thought occurs to us, well, then if God has chosen some, then he hasn't chosen others. He's let them go. And it seems as though God is unjust. And we have to ask ourselves, will anybody be able to raise that charge against God at the last day? Is this fair? And I think the, the answer to that is God would be fully just to let everybody go their way. God is fully just to consign everybody to hell. He doesn't need to save anybody. He's not bound to do that. He would be infinitely glorified by the glory, the praise of his justice if he did that. That's what everybody deserves. The wages of sin is death. So we all deserve that. Packer says this, J.I. Packer in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, he says, a God whom we can understand exhaustively and whose revelation of himself confronted us with no mysteries whatsoever would be a God in man's image and therefore an imaginary God and not the God of the Bible at all. We can't get our arms around all of this. If you think, well, I've got it all figured out, then we need to shrink because that's not... The idea is that we're to adore him and praise him, but we can't understand all of these mysteries. What about my free will? That's often a question that's raised, and some Reformed people say, well, there's no such thing as free will. You ever heard that? I mean, I've said that before. There is this chapter nine in the Westminster Confession, and the title of chapter nine is On Free Will. Okay, so reform people, hello, it's in the Westminster Confession of Faith, so don't say there's no free will, okay? But what does it say about free will? Well, let me just tell you briefly what chapter nine of the confession says. It says, first of all, that God has endued the will of man with that natural liberty, okay, he has freedom, that is neither forced nor by any absolute necessity of nature determine good or evil. Meaning, there's, you can't say, well, the devil made me do it or God force me this way, and and something has compelled me to do something against my will. No, your will is free. But the problem is, the next four points of of chapter nine of the confession has to do with our ability. And so in Eden, before Adam and Eve ever fell into sin, in their state of innocence, they had the ability to obey, and they had the ability to disobey, okay? They were created good. Yet they fell, which is the great mystery is how they fell into sin because they had no inclination towards sin. God created them upright. We're told in Ecclesiastes 7.29. And so the great mystery of mysteries is how come they fell into sin. But they had the, in that innocence, they had the ability to obey and the ability to disobey. But now in the fall, all those other verses that I've just read to you, they only have the ability now to disobey. We don't have the ability in and of ourselves. Dead men don't just jump up and receive Jesus. Dead men don't do anything. And you say, well, then how come people come to Christ? How can the lame man pick up his mat and walk? How can a man dead in the grave four days and he says, Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. How can he come forth? Does he have the ability to come forth? Did, did the lame man have the ability to walk? Of course not. How did they do it? Miracle, miracle, miracle. God did it. God regenerated. God saved him. God raised him up. God gets all the glory. That's how it happens. We don't have the ability in and of ourselves. That's what happens. And so in the fall, we don't have the ability. But now in glory, in conversion, conversion now we do have the ability to 
praise him and, and to respond to him and obey him, but we still have the ability to sin. And the good news of heaven is we only have the ability to obey. If people were really into free will and you can free will this or that, we would all freely leave heaven and head on out. Aren't you glad that you don't have the ability to sin when you get to heaven? I remember sharing this once with a guy at the hospital after their baby was born and they, this was somebody that used to be at our church and they really didn't wanna be here because they didn't believe in the doctrines of grace and, and I had to say, you know, well, in heaven, if you really believe this, would we really stay there in heaven? Would we really stay? Because our hearts are so sinful. God is so good, yet we, our, our corruption has to be totally changed so we have the ability to obey him, otherwise we would depart. So that's the, that's the chapter on free will from the confession. And so R.C. Sproul in his classic book, Chosen by God, there's a place where he asks two questions. And he said, and, and the questions are this, which of these is a true statement? Here are the two questions, okay? God's sovereignty can never resist human freedom. You probably heard that before. God's sovereignty, it can never resist my free will. Or human freedom can never restrict the sovereignty of God. Which of those is true? Well, the answer biblically is the latter, is the second. There are lots of places in scripture where God thwarts man's plan and his free will. One of those was Abimelech. Okay, and we'll get to this in our Genesis class, but Abraham and Sarah, and the second time that Abraham says to his sister, or says to his wife, say you're my sister, and again she gets taken by a king, and Abimelech has her, and it's, the, the Bible says in Genesis 20, verse six, that God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. He didn't say that about the king, the Pharaoh in Genesis 12. So that was not good for Sarah. But this time, God intervened sovereignly and would not allow Abimelech to touch her. How come? Could God not have done that in Genesis 3 with the fruit? He could have, and he didn't. He allowed mankind to plunge into the fall so that we would know all of his attributes, all of his grace, all of his glory, all of his goodness. What attributes would you know about God if we had never fallen into sin? How much of God would you know about? Would you know his justice? Would you know his mercy? Would you know his grace? We would know not a whole lot about God. We know a lot more. He has allowed this to happen to bring about greater grace and greater glory to himself. God has free will. We are told in probably the most classic passage in the Westminster Confession of Faith is chapter three, article one, and it goes like this. God from all eternity did by his most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely, God has the one who has free will, unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet there's three things you have to be safeguarding against. Here they are. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin. We don't lay the blame on God's doorstep, ring the doorbell and leave, okay? We can't do that. In the, in the mystery of God, he allowed it to happen and yet he's not to be the one that's the author of sin. 
Number two, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, meaning you can't say that God made me do it. Judas can't say, well, it was predetermined that I was gonna betray Jesus and and I didn't wanna do it, but you made me do it. No, no, you wanted to do it, Judas, and you did it. And none of us can say in our sin that you didn't want it. And, and, then the, and then the same is true about coming to Christ. We come to Christ because he takes out a heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh, and we come willingly in the day of his power. And so the idea here is that the liberty or contingency of second causes is not taken away but rather established, meaning the means of salvation is through the preaching of God's word, through the prayers of God's people, through the sharing of our faith. Those means are not to be taken away. We should be all the more diligent in those things and not inclined to be otherwise. And so there's often this thinking of the frozen chosen myth. And the frozen chosen myth is that, well, if this is all true, well, I guess I don't really need to do nothing. I'll just sit on the pew, I'll be a frozen chosen, and I'll just wait for God to blast me to glory. Is that what the Bible teaches? And we may think, and I think there's often a tendency towards this to kind of vacillate on one side or the other, is that we can be lax in our prayers and lax and not no longer sharing our faith because we're just, well, God's gonna do it. If he's gonna, if he's gonna bring them to faith, well, he, he's gonna do it whether I share with him or not. And so reality is God uses people. God lives by his decrees we live by his commands. I don't know what his decrees are, but I know what his commands are to me. And so our first response, though, in, in, in thinking through this should be one of worship. I hope that you see, last week we sang this song, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place by Isaac Watts. And the song, the lyrics were in last week, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues. This is like when we get to heaven. Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I a guest? Next verse. Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands made a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. If God hadn't intervened, we would rather starve than come. So the prayer of, of the Song goes on, pity the nations, O our God, constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. We long to see your churches full that all the chosen race may with one heart and soul and voice sing thy redeeming grace. And so we should be compelled to pray and to worship. Tim Keller puts it like this in thinking about the, the, the electricity, so to speak, of this, the good news of this. He says, imagine you have an apartment, all your possessions in the apartment, but imagine um, you have one thing in your apartment, some family heirloom, some piece of jewelry, something you've inherited that's worth 10, 10 or 20 times more than everything else you have in that apartment. And all of a sudden you hear a fire alarm. Uh-oh, you smell smoke, there's a fire. What are you gonna do? You have to get out, it's very easy. You get your inheritance, the heirloom. You get your laptop and you're fine. You have all your information. You have 95% of your net worth right there. You run out and you know you won't have any problem buying new furniture if there's a real fire and all that sort of thing, he says. So the idea is that, you know, if there's a fire, you're gonna grab the thing that's most precious to you, right? And then he says, God has the audacity to say, the one who owns the stars, the galaxies, the planet, all these worlds, and when he looks at you, he says, this is my inheritance. 
And if you don't believe that, look at verse 18 of, of Ephesians 1. Paul is praying that our eyes will be opened, that we would know what is the hope to what he's called you and what are the riches of whose inheritance? Our inheritance? No, his glorious inheritance. His inheritance in the saints. And he's praying that we would understand that we are God's inheritance. And if you can get your arms around that, that'd take eternity. We are his inheritance. He ran to us. Peculiar love, particular love for his people. And so let's think about what that means for us as we go forward from here. Is that there, there does seem to be this, as Packer talks about in the very beginning of his book, Evangelism, Sovereignty of God. He wrote it in 1961. It still is relevant as the day he wrote it. He says, there is abroad today a widespread suspicion that a robust faith in the absolute sovereignty of God is bound to undermine any adequate sense, adequate sense of human responsibility. Such a faith is thought to be dangerous to spiritual health because it breeds a habit of complacent inertia. In particular, it's thought to paralyze evangelism by robbing one both of the motive to evangelize and the message to evangelize with. The supposition seems to be that you cannot evangelize effectively unless you're pre prepared to pretend while you're doing that, that the doctrine of divine sovereignty is not true. That's how he begins his book. And so he's trying to prove, his point is that if it weren't for the sovereign grace of God, that evangelism would be the most futile and useless enterprise that the world has ever seen. And that it would be a complete waste of time under the sun to preach the gospel. But the doctrine of election makes missions hopeful, not unnecessary, because you know that there are people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and they are coming, and they're gonna be worshiping him at the last day. So when people go and we're called to go to the ends of the earth, we know that people are gonna come because God has promised that they're gonna come. And so the idea of the frozen chosen myth is the, is the very people that are committed to the doctrines of grace like Spurgeon and like William Carey and John Patton and the Apostle Paul and on and on, George Whitfield and others, they were the most zealous for doing the good works which God had called them to do. Spur Spurgeon, who was a great Calvinist, they, it says about his life, he wrote in his autobiography, he says, no one living knows the toil and care I have to bear. I have to look after the orphanage, have charge of a church with 4,000 members. Sometimes there are marriages and burials to be undertaken. There's the weekly sermon to be revised. There's a sword and the trowel to be edited. And besides all that, a weekly average of 500 letters to be answered. This is only half my duty though. There are innumerable churches established by friends with the affairs of which I am closely connected to say nothing of the cases of difficulty which are constantly being referred to me. He, he was, was he a lazy guy? Did he say, well, God's gonna do it? No. By the grace of God, I am what I am. But by the grace of God, Paul says, I worked harder than any of them. Grace is not an any excuse to make us lazy. At Spurgeon's 50th birthday, there was a list of 66 organizations that he had founded and conducted, and Lord Shaftesbury was there, and he said, this list of associations instituted by his genius, superintended by his care, was more than enough to occupy the minds and affairs of 50 ordinary men. He typically read six substantial books a week. He could remember what he read and where to find it. He produced more than 140 books of his own. I mean, the guy was obviously extremely gifted but he used his gifts not to be lazy. And you think of William Carey, 
William Carey was in England in the 17, uh, late 1700s. There wasn't a whole lot of mission activity. And God, he felt compelled by God to go to India and to preach the gospel to those who'd never heard. So he went to his elders and he shared his vision and the elder, one of the elders snapped at him and said, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. How about that for an elder? That's what you call hyper-Calvinism, okay? That's what you call untrue. William Carey was used of the Lord and at one point, all of his work went up in a fire, all of his translation work. Imagine, no computer, I mean, so much worse, but it just was gone. And he had to start over. And he felt like he hadn't done hardly anything at the end. He said he was just a worm at the end of his life. Yet his team translated the Bible into 34 Asian languages, compiled dictionaries of all these different languages. They started an influential college. They began churches. They established 19 mission stations. They formed 100 rural schools, started all kinds of things. Is it because they believe that, they, that this leads to frozen chosenness? Just the opposite. You see, the Apostle Paul, who talks about election in Romans, and Romans 9 is all about God's sovereign election. Romans 11 is all about God's sovereignty and election. Yet Romans 10 is Paul's heart, and he's saying, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. And then he says, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How are they how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are saint? How, uh, sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And the picture is the marathon runner running this miles and miles to bring the good news of the message of victory. And here Paul is talking about between two chapters of election about the responsibility of God's people to take the word to the ends of the earth. This is not a, a frozen chosen idea. It's just the opposite. That's such a myth. And so we naturally recognize in our culture when people come to the realization that this is what they're called to do and they're good at it, we say, you found it. We, we love that. We love when people, they're using their gifts in technology and engineering and science and music and arts and athletics and they discover what God has designed them to do. We, are, we just love that. I mean, I'm so thankful to Brian Donahue fixed my computer today. I mean, man, God made that guy to fix computers. He's, he saved me more than once. I mean, he's he saved me before. And, and you say, praise God. When people are passionate and they've discovered their passion, we get that. Well, God has created us as his people to do good works, which he created beforehand that we should walk in them. And so this is not any idea that we're to cut off God's sovereignty or, or man's responsibility. These are two ropes that come down. They're tied up in heaven. We can't see how they're tied, but they come down and both ropes are absolutely equally true. You are responsible. God is completely sovereign. He lives by his decrees. We live by his commands. And it is not any idea that we are to be uh, lazy or, or frozen as a response to God's amazing grace. And so if you're here this morning and you're wondering, uh, what about me? What if you're not a believer or you're not sure where you're at, those outside of Christ? Well, 
Imagine this as an illustration. Imagine you're a four-legged sheep and you're caught in the thicket. This is from Ernst Reinsinger. He says, imagine you're a four-legged sheep, you're caught in a thicket from which you can't free yourself. You're cold, hungry, thirsty. Your throat is sore from, from bleating. The more you struggle to get free, the more the briars dig into your flesh and make the blood flow. And finally, in utter despair, you resign yourself to your pitiful situation. You quit struggling and you pr prepare to die. But in that most hopeless situation, you hear the familiar sound of the shepherd. What would you do? You would do what a sheep does. Bah, bah. You'd start to cry. Well, if you're a two-legged sheep this morning and you're in the same condition, you'd react in the same way. You're caught in a thicket of sin. You can't get loose. The harder you try, the more you realize you're failing by the bonds of sin. You can't get free. You're hungry. You're tired. You're thirsty. And there's a gracious shepherd that's calling out, and he's crying, and he's seeking his sheep. And what is our response but to cry out, bah, bah, save me save me. The Bible says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's God's promise. So call upon him and he will save you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the shepherd of the sheep, the good shepherd, the great shepherd who lays down your, your life and you also come seeking. We thank you for Lord, we, we are lost without you. No hope. We thank you, Lord, for calling to yourself sinners like us. And Lord, you've given us uh, so much. You've given each gifts, spiritual gifts, abilities, and may we use them, Lord, to do the good works. May we learn to pray more and more, Lord. Just let us do the good works that you have for us today. What are the good works that you would have us walk in today and this week, this month and this year and our lifetime? What are the good works that you've created us for, for us to walk in, that you've prepared for us to do? May we not resist you. May we follow you wholeheartedly. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.